Book Two, Chapter Six of My Own Story by Emmeline Pankhurst. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Four Years of Peaceful Militancy, Chapter Six. The militant movement was at this point when, in October 1909, I made my first visit to the United States. I shall never forget the excitement of my landing, the first meeting with the American reporter, an experience dreaded by all Europeans. In fact, the first few days seemed a bewildering whirl of reporters and receptions, all leading up to my first lecture at Carnegie Hall on October 25th. The huge hall was entirely filled, and an enormous crowd of people thronged the streets outside for blocks. With me on the stage were several women whom I had met in Europe, and in the chair was an old friend, Mrs. Stanton Blatch, whose early married life had been spent in England. The great crowd before me, however, was made up of strangers, and I could not know how they would respond to my story. When I rose to speak a deep hush fell, but at my first words, I am what you call a hooligan, a great shout of warm and sympathetic laughter shook the walls. Then I knew that I had found friends in America, and this all the rest of the tour demonstrated. In Boston the committee met me with a big gray automobile decorated in the colors of our union, and that night at Tremont Temple I spoke to an audience of 2,500 people, all most generous in their responsiveness. In Baltimore, professors and students from John Hopkins University acted as stewards of the meeting. I greatly enjoyed my visit to Bryn Mawr College and to Rosemary Hall, a wonderful school for girls in Connecticut. In Chicago, I met, among other notable people, Miss Jane Adams and Mrs. Ella Flagg Young, superintendent of schools. My visit to Canada will always be remembered, especially Toronto, where the mayor, dressed in the chains of his office, welcomed me. I met, too, the venerable Goldwyn Smith, since dead. Everywhere I found the Americans kind and keen, and I cannot say too much for the wonderful hospitality they showed me. The women I found were remarkably interested in social welfare. The work of the women's club struck me very favorably, and I thought these institutions a perfect basis for a suffrage movement. But at that time, 1909, the suffrage movement in the United States was in a curious state of quiescence. A large number of women with whom I came in contact appeared to think it only just that they should have a vote, but few seemed to realize any actual need of it. Some, it is true, were beginning to connect the vote with the reforms for which they were working so unselfishly and so devotedly. It was when talking with the younger woman that I came to feel that under the surface of things in America a strong suffrage movement was stirring. Those young women, leaving their splendid colleges to begin life, were realizing in a very intelligent fashion that they needed and would be obliged to secure for themselves a political status. On December 1st I sailed on the Mauritania for England, and on arriving I learned that the prison sentence which hung over me while the petition's case had been argued was discharged, some unknown friend having paid my fine while I was on the ocean. The year 1910 began with a general election, precipitated by the House of Lords' rejection of Mr. Lloyd George's 1909 budget. The Liberal Party went to the country with the promises of taxes on land values. They promised also abolition of the veto power of the Lords, Irish Home Rule, disestablishment of the Church of Wales, and other reforms. Woman suffrage was not directly promised, but Mr. Asquith pledged that, if retained in office, he would introduce an electoral reform bill which could be amended to include women's suffrage. The Unionists, under the leadership of Mr. Balfour, had tariff reform for their program, and they offered not even a vague promise of a possible suffrage measure. Yet we, as usual, went into the constituencies and opposed the Liberal Party. We had no faith in Mr. Asquith's pledge, and besides, if we had failed to oppose the party in power, we should but have invited Mr. Asquith and Mr. Balfour to enter into an agreement not to deal with the suffrage, with the view of keeping the cause permanently outside practical politics. 
we were in something of the same position as the irish nationalists in eighteen eighty five when neither the liberal nor the conservative leaders would include home rule in their program the irish opposed the liberal party with the result that it was returned by such a narrow majority that the liberal government was dependent on the irish vote in parliament in order to remain in office on this account they were obliged to bring in a home rule bill the other suffrage societies and many of the liberal women begged us not to oppose the liberal party at this election we were implored to waive our claim just this once in view of the importance of the struggle between the commons and the house of lords over the budget we replied that the same plea had been made in nineteen o six when we were implored to waive our claim just this once on account of the fiscal issue for women there was only one political issue we said and that was the issue of their own enfranchisement the dispute between the lords and the commons was far less vital than the claims of the people represented in this case by women to be admitted to citizenship from our point of view both houses of parliament were unrepresentative until women had a voice in choosing legislators and influencing law-making we opposed liberal candidates in forty constituencies and in almost every one of these the liberal majorities were reduced and no less than eighteen seats were wrested from the liberal candidates it really was a terrible election for the government mr asquith travelled from one constituency to another accompanied by a bodyguard of detectives and official chuckers out whose sole duty was to eject women and men as well who interrupted his meeting on the question of votes for women the halls where he spoke had the windows boarded up or the glass covered with strong wire netting every thoroughfare leading to the halls was barricaded traffic was suspended and large forces of police were on guard the most extraordinary precautions were taken to protect the prime minister at one place he went to his meeting strongly guarded and by way of a secret pathway that led through gooseberry bushes and a cabbage patch to a back door after the meeting he escaped through the same door and was solemnly guided along a path heavily laid with sawdust to deaden his footsteps to a concealed motor-car where he sat until the crowd had all dispersed other ministers had to resort to similar precautions they lived under the constant protection of bodyguards their meetings were policed in a manner without precedent of course no women were admitted to their meetings but they got in just the same two women hid for twenty-five hours in the rafter of a hall in loth where mr lloyd george spoke they were arrested but not until after they had made their demonstration two others hid under a platform for twenty-two hours in order to question the prime minister i could continue this record almost indefinitely we had printed a wonderful poster showing the process of forcible feeding and we used it on hoardings everywhere we told the electors that the liberal party the people's friend had imprisoned four hundred fifty women for the crime of asking for a vote they were torturing women at that time in holloway it was splendid ammunition and it told the liberal party was returned to power but with their majority over all sections of the house of commons swept away the asquith government were dependent now for their very existence on the vote of the labor party and the irish nationalists end of book two chapter six